The Air by Vita Sackville West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story four, Her Son. Seven. She went into no explanation. She did not remind him of the three hundred acres required to round off the estate, nor did she make the confession which she had been saving up, like a guilty child, of how she had got round the obstinacy of Mr. Thistlewaite. She made some quiet reply to his last remark, and went on talking of other things. He was perfectly oblivious to the moment that had come and gone, and she, in her mind, was already making excuses for him. He had been away for so long, he had grown accustomed to such vast districts where three hundred acres must seem paltry indeed. When they had looked sufficiently at the view, she returned down the path beside him, her hand still slipped into the crook of his arm, without the slightest resentment. Henry, she could never harbour resentment against Henry. But a little of the eagerness was gone, not much, only the first edge taken off. She struggled to restore it. She had an uneasy feeling of disloyalty towards Henry. And really, he had been so very charming. Nothing could have been more charming, or more to her taste, than his manner towards her from the very first moment when he had bent to kiss her in the porch, fond but deferential, intimate but courteous. Henry was the sort of man who would always be courteous towards women, even when the woman happened to be his own mother. Mrs. Martin greatly appreciated courtesy. She often said that it was becoming rarer and more rare. Certainly Henry's manner had been perfect in every respect, and she was seized with remorse that she could have directed against him so much as the criticism of a passing disappointment. She must not admit to herself that the edge of her eagerness was blunted, and she began forcing herself to talk of lines and the farm, and presently, because Henry listened with so much attention and interest, she found her eagerness creeping back. They went round to the rickyard together, where Lines, in his breeches and leather gaiters, was talking to the carter, but broke off to come towards Henry, who shook hands with him, while Mrs. Martin stood by, beaming upon their meeting. She was enchanted with Henry. He asked Lines questions about the cattle, and followed him into the door of the shed, where the afternoon's milking was in progress. Mrs. Martin waited for them near the ricks, because she did not like the dirty cobbles of the farmyard. She was perfectly happy again. This was what she had always foreseen, and she liked things to turn out exactly according to the picture she had been in the habit of making in advance of her own mind. She was only disconcerted when they fell out differently. How good was Henry's manner with lines! She watched the two men as they stood in the doorway of the cowshed. Henry had said something and Lines was laughing. He pushed back his cap off his forehead and scratched his head, and she heard him say, "'That's right, sir. That's just about the size of it.' Her heart swelled with pride in Henry. He was getting on with Lines. Lines approved of him, that was obvious, and Lines' approval was not easily won. He was a scornful man, not always very tractable either, and very contemptuous of most people's knowledge of agriculture. But here he was, approving of Henry. Her own esteem of Henry rose in proportion, as she saw Lyne's esteem. She felt that a little of the credit belonged to her for being Henry's mother. 
They came towards her, walking slowly and talking, across the soft ground of the rickyard, where the cartwheels had cut deep ruts, and the wisps of straw were sodden into the black earth. It was a great satisfaction to her to see Henry and Lines thus together. She was the impresario, exhibiting them to one another. The afternoon was drawing very gently to a close, a little cold, perhaps, a little grey, but still tender, a dove-like grey hovering over the trees, over the ricks, and over the barn with the yellow lichen on the roof. A tang of damp farmyard was, not unpleasantly, on the air. "'We'll go in now, shall we, Henry? It's getting chilly,' said Mrs. Martin, wrapping herself more closely in her brown cloak, and nodding and smiling to lines. As they went towards the house, Henry said, looking down at her in that confidential way he had, "'Well, that's a great duty accomplished, isn't it?' "'Duty, Henry?' "'Yes, talking to lines, I mean.' "'Oh, talking to lines, to be sure.' You were so nice to him, dear boy. Thank you. Duty. The word gave her a small chill. She bent over the fire in the sitting-room, poking it into a blaze. The logs fell apart and shot up into flame. I do like a wood fire, said Mrs. Martin. She held out her hands toward it. They were cold. She had not known, until that moment, how cold she had been. 8. They were at dinner. How nice Henry looked in his evening clothes. She liked his lean brown hands, and the gesture with which he smoothed back his hair. She smiled fondly as she thought how attractive all women must find Henry. Life on a ranch had not coarsened him. Far from it. He was sensitive and masculine both, an ideal combination. "'Dear Henry,' she murmured. He leant over and patted her hand but there was an absent look in his eyes, and his manner was slightly more perfunctory than it had been at luncheon. Anyone but Mrs. Martin would have suspected that he could assume that manner at will, had, in fact, assumed it often, towards many women who had misinterpreted it, and whom he had forgotten as soon as they were out of sight. They had reproached him sometimes. There was a fair echo of reproaches in Henry's life. He had always felt aggrieved when they reproached him. Couldn't they understand that he was kind-hearted, really? That he only wanted to please? To make life agreeable? He hated saying anything disagreeable to anybody, but greatly preferred enrolling them among the victims of his charm, which he could turn on, at a moment's notice, like turning on a tap. And if they misunderstood him, he did not consider that he had been to blame. Not that he remained to argue the matter out. It was far easier, in most cases, simply to go right away instead, without giving any explanation, right away to where the clamour that was sure to arise would not reach his ears at all. And sometimes, when he had not managed so skilfully as usual, and things had been, briefly, tiresome, he would criticise himself to the extent of thinking that he was a damned fool to have, incorrigibly, so little foresight of where the easy path was leading him. Yet he was not quite right about this, for he was perfectly well able to recognize the progress of his own drifting, but he recognized it as though it applied to some other person, in whose affairs he was himself unable to interfere. He watched himself as he might have watched another man, thinking meanwhile, with an amused contempt and a certain compassion, 
How the dickens is he going to get himself out of this? End of story four, sections seven and eight.